Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. As our chat show turns to the open future season, we're asking, what's the role of the mere male in modern culture? My guest this week is one of the most distinctive and uncompromising voices in American drama, playwright and screenwriter David Mamet. Over the last 40 years, he's conquered both Broadway and Hollywood with excruciating portraits of aggression, insecurity and cultural misunderstanding in America. Mamet's terse, confrontational dialogue, full of four-letter words, bleak humour and everyday cruelty, has earned its own name, Mamet Speak. His targets range from the desperate 1980s real estate agents of Glengarry Glen Ross... A, B, C. A, always B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing to the grimy businesses of Hollywood and politics in Speed the Plough and Wag the Dog. But perhaps his best-known play is Oleana, a he-said-she-said about sexual harassment allegations on campus. It's enraged some audiences and fascinated others. But I don't understand. I, I don't understand. I don't understand what anything means. And I walk around from morning till night with this one thought in my head. I'm stupid. No one thinks you're stupid. No, what am I? I... What am I then? I think you're angry. Still not one to shy away from controversy, David Mamet has just finished a new play based on the Harvey Weinstein saga. With a Pulitzer Prize and multiple Tony and Oscar nominations on his mantelpiece, he's turned back to novels. His latest, Chicago, follows rough, tough newspapermen chasing rougher, tougher gangsters in the windy city of the 1920s. David Mamet, welcome to The Economist Asks. Oh, well, you're welcome. Tell me, what brought you back to writing novels after 20 years away from the form and, and back to Chicago? Well, the 1920s are the time of magic. I mean, my dad was born in 1923, and so I grew up with the stories that he heard as a child, which is all about gangland Chicago, because, I mean, that's what we talk about in Chicago. I mean, you guys over there, you talk about... Uh, Heck, I don't know what you're talking about. A Manchester United, an Arsenal, and all of that stuff. But the, over in Chicago, we talk about the gangsters. That's <laughs> that's what we grew up in. That that milieu, you know, whether they're shooting people up or s- serving on the city council. So those were the stories I grew up in. And just as, uh, for example, Mario Puzo grew up with the stories that his dad told about the mafia. It's the same thing. It's the native myth. We never quite get rid of it, though, do we, if we look at the success of The Sopranos? Do we glamorise the mafia too much? Well, when I was first started coming over to your side of the pond, someone say, in any country in Europe, they ask you where you're from, and you say Chicago, and they make a Tommy gun gesture and go, rat tat tat Al Capone. Uh, they don't do that anymore. I kind of miss it. I don't know if we glamorize the mafia too much. I mean, listen, the, it's no different than the War of the Roses. The mafia is a 
in addition to being real, just like the English royalty is real, it's also a myth. It's our uh, gods and goddesses, our Mount Olympus, our House of Atreus, our, our national myth, that is to say the way in which Americans like to believe we understand life, is uh, the godfather. What the, the macho characters now seem quite dated in a way, at least masculinity feels different, different problems which you've dealt with, different tensions. If we think of the world of the untouchables, another of your very well-known works, which turns on this world, how has that world of masculinity changed? Or do those instincts, those mafia, those criminal dark world instincts simply flow elsewhere? Well, we still believe in, look at, I mean, ho- however much uh, certain segments of the population are saying that there's th- there's no such thing as men and women, uh, nobody actually believes that. that. That is because when push comes to shove, as Bishop Barclay said, the test of truth is would you trust your life to it? In the middle of the night, no woman's going to say, honey, there's a, I think there's a burglar downstairs, but I'll go, you went last time. So when push comes to shove, there there are certain attributes which perhaps can be identified as masculine attributes, whether or not they are embodied in a male or female, which are necessary to the continuation of of any culture. And uh, I'm just going to challenge you that no woman would would be the one to say, "Look, I'll try and take on the burglar." if they were fitter or better equipped to than their other half. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I was talking to this woman up in Oakland, California the other day, and she said, oh, there's a mass of break-ins around here, and I'm really, really frightened for my life. I said, well, you're right to be. Why don't you get a gun? And so she said, oh, no, no, I wouldn't think of doing that. So that seems to me to be muddy thinking. Uh, Whether that's masculine thinking or not, I don't know. Uh, I noticed that we have an integration of women into combat in various forms of, of the American military. And in some cases, it's uh, why not, for example, the Air Force. And in some cases, uh, maybe they should re-examine that again, for example, the Navy SEALs. But uh, what the hell? But uh, j- just quickly, on the gun control point, you wouldn't. Uh, you made a comparison with states using force, but this is private individuals as a habit holding weapons. And that's that's something you still feel comfortable with. Well, I'll tell you what, whether I feel comfortable or not, it's actually the law. It doesn't matter whether I feel comfortable, and it's, it's part of the American Constitution. That some people might not like it or might be vehemently opposed to it doesn't alter the fact that it's the law. Uh, let's stay with masculinity, if we could, because it's been such a, a huge area of research and, and interest, uh, an immersion in your works. It feels more politicized now, doesn't it, as, a, as an idea, more picked apart. So how is that changing American masculinity, do you think? Well, it's an old, old story. And if one reads Gibbon, as I'm sure we all do, we see that this is one of the signs of a culture which is toying with taking over on the, the, the decline. It's the culture which says we no longer need to defend ourselves. Can't we just like each other? That's what happened to Rome. You know, there's another great book by a guy who was a a British general who then became the head of the, um, I think, the Arab Legion. And his name was Glub, John Glub Pasha, who wrote the same book. And he said, that's what happens to civilizations. They stop saying, there are certain things I'm prepared to defend with my life. And the point at which they stop saying that someone else is going to take over that civilization. But isn't the 
question around masculinity, not just about are you prepared to fight for your values, it's complicated by the fact that social and work patterns are changing by automation, by more women in the workforce, by rising expectations on the part of women that things will be different for them. That's before you get to fighting anything to do with foreign wars or security. Isn't that changing and challenging? Yes, it is. Traditional that... roles of masculinity. Absolutely. And well, I, I'm just wondering how you respond to that. There's a great Jewish expression that's called that means let's put our ass on the table and talk about it. There's always been a war between the sexes. And at some point, somebody is going to be winning at some point or another. And that's true. The fact that women are standing up and saying, there's no more, I don't want any more sexual exploitation in the workforce is, is, is magnificent. On the other hand, if you look at the, the history of the suffragettes movement, there were two things that, that they fervently believed. One was that women, being human beings, deserved the vote, in which they were not only correct but heroic. The other was that when women got the vote, quote, things would change, end quotation, because women are smarter than men, which is just not true. But it's not true that it changed things or it's not true that they're smarter? No, no, it's not true that women are smarter than men, that just as women, as men, have the right, equal right to vote, I mean, you could say that's a natural right, it's also not true that women, as men, are human beings, which means that none of us are really very, very smart. Is it a sum-zero game? You talk about it as a war, one side is always going to be winning, therefore the other side losing at any time, can't both sides kind of move along by a difficult gradual negotiation together? And isn't that sometimes what some of your, your work has been about? And I'm, I'm thinking of Oleana there, but not just that. Well, you know, the thing about a play is if it's going to be any good and it's a tragedy, uh, the people have to destroy each other. That's what a tragedy is. I don't think that the men and women is a zero-sum game. Quite the contrary. I've been married blissfully for 30 years, and I got a whole bunch of daughters and so forth. I think that men and women are uh, are intended to get along. Whether they get married or they get along sexually, that doesn't make any difference because they're human beings, and I, I fervently believe that. I think that it's very, very difficult to speak with clarity about issues A, which involve sexuality, and B, which involve politics. And when you put the two of them together, it's almost impossible to say something which isn't going to tick somebody off. And you're diving in, or to take your great Jewish phrase there, you are putting your ass on the table because you are writing a play, or have written a play, I think, about Harvey Weinstein called Bitter Wheat. What can you tell us about it? It was inspired, I think, by a, an interchange I had with a, a, an actress. I was working with an actress, and I'd cast her in a, in a part, very big part for her at the time, in a film, and she'd come to a costume fitting. And after the costume fitting, I said, oh, this is great, see you on the set. Let me walk you to the car. And as we walked her to the car, this voluble actress, all of a sudden she became removed. And I, I, I looked at her, I said, oh, my God, she thinks I'm walking her to the car because I want to hit on her. And it kind of broke my heart, being you know married to an actress and the father of several of them. It kind of broke my heart. So I've been watching all of this, this Me Too movement with, um, as all of us have, a, a great deal of interest. And then the Harvey thing happened, and I, I know him a little bit, I did a little bit of business with him. I thought, well, okay, here's a pretty good subject for what, what finally is 
uh, a comedy, because that's one of the ways we deal with the things that can't be addressed rationally. We can deal with them in two ways. We can deal with them with tragedy and say, well, that's the human condition. We're no good, and we end up destroying each other, although we try. And we can deal with them with comedy, saying, well, that's the human good condition. We, we're no good, and we end up destroying each other. But once in a while, you got to step back and, and say, it's all too goddamn funny. Is Harvey Weinstein funny? I think he's hysterical. I think what he did isn't funny, but I think the... Uh, by the way, let me say again, uh, people have been calling this my Harvey Weinstein play, and I might have too, but it's just, it's just an inspiration for the, uh, the play. For example, I just read a wonderful book that came out called The Real Lolita, which is by a woman, a woman named Sarah Weinman, a wonderful reporter, a wonderful writer. She discovered that Lolita was actually based on a current case, and she went and researched that case at, at length and researched Nabokov's files at length, and at some point he admitted it, and at some point he denied it. But uh, Lolita, which one of the, the great works of the 20th century, was uh, inspired by an actual case. Uh, so there's, there's Yes, but she's, she's kind of doing the archaeology backwards. In the case of Harvey Weinstein, there are people still trying to bring criminal prosecutions against him. If they said, look, this is a bit tasteless to, to base uh, your work of fiction on him now, what would you say? Have you read the play? No, bit of wheat. No, I'd be very thrilled to read the play if you send it to us. Well, then, well, okay, so let me ask you a question. These, these fictional women whom you, you put forward, who might say it is a bit tasteless, in your imagination, have they read the play? Well, they won't have done. They'll be addressing the idea and the subject matter, won't they, rather than the play. That's true. Well, okay, so let me ask you, as an intelligent person who has not read the play, do you think it's tasteless? Yes, I'm, I'm tempted to answer, but no, I don't know, because I haven't read the play. I'm, I'm wary of it, but I would re read okay. it and take it on its merits. Well, then that would be my answer to you. <laughs> I think that's an excellent answer, and I think it's a legitimate answer and good for you. The question is, read the play. Well, then, okay, I, let, let me ask you a question. Then <laughs> you, You've done very well to turn the question on me, quite rightly. But how would you portray a character based on Harvey Weinstein? I mean, what, what is your view of him? Well, it's a character. It's an inspiration. I, I think that we have to understand the difference. So the question is, is it an apology for Harvey Weinstein? Which you're absolutely correct. Might be tasteless. I don't, I don't think there should be prior restraint, but it would absolutely be tasteless. But I'll answer you a question. Let me ask you a question. Are you, are you, how well acquainted are you with my work? I'm pretty well acquainted with your work, but it depends what you ask. My question is this, what have you found in my work that's tasteless? I haven't found anything in your work that's tasteless, but then I wasn't only talking about my response, and the Harvey Weinstein and Me Too is a very reactive subject right now. Well then, I, I, thank you, because so, so my question to you would be twofold. One, if you found nothing in my work that's tasteless, not that it's my job to be tasteful, but if you found as you've confessed nothing in my work that's tasteless, why would you suggest that my new work, someone might find my new work tasteless. And my second question is, why would you want to suppose a case on facts that aren't in evidence? Here's the thing. It's real easy to dismiss any thought or any art by saying, what would you say to someone who said? But that... that it's, it's not dismissing. It's a question, in fairness, right? It's not I'm, a dismissal. I'm sorry? It's certainly not intended that way by me. It's not intended as a dismissal. No, no, I understand. It, it is a journalistic question. 
I've been told that, or people have said that. Uh, there's no response to that. You know, it, okay, that, well, let, let, let's move, let's broaden it or, or move it on, but it is related. I mean, does this sort of sit for you as a sort of continuation of taking on difficult, fraught territories between men and women and power between men and women that you explored in, in Oleana? I mean, how do you look back to that and see this as something that is in, in the same family, if you like? Not at all. Oleana's a tragedy. Uh, it's, a, it's about two people with, with all the, the best will in the world attempting to reach out to each other, ruin each other's lives. That's why the play keeps getting done. It's not a polemic. It's a tragedy. felt at the time like it was summarizing a mood at the time, and in a sense that mood has become even more reactive since you wrote it. Well, maybe yes and maybe no. I don't know. I don't know. You know, I sit, I sit alone in my little room every day and I make stuff up and I write it down and sometimes people do it and sometimes people like it. But it's not my job to be tasteful, although I think my work is kind of tasteful, but it's my job to write down the fantasies of things which confuse me and upset me and to try to work them out mythologically, which is what a dramatist does. The, the, the plays which are issue plays, you'll notice that they don't last more than one generation. Nobody cares because the issues change, but plays which have to deal with people getting concerned or, in effect, amused by human nature, uh, you know, we're still doing them uh, five, six hundred, two thousand years later, for God's sake. We're still doing the Menechmi twins. <laughs> well, that, that will definitely, definitely be the case. I just looked back to the reception of Oleana, and, and I think 1992, there, there were already quite a lot of people basically saying this is politically irresponsible or there's, there's kind of something wrong with the, this portrayal in drama. Do you feel the free speech argument about what people want to see or don't want to see on stage has got worse since then? What is the free speech argument? Well, I think it's about campus politics, really, isn't it? In the sense of, well, safe spaces, trigger warnings. Well, look, at the American university system is over. It's, uh, it's just done. It's a hotbed of bizarre, loathsome ideas, and it's the greatest abandonment of the young since the Hitler youth to say, come here and you grade the professors and uh, march up and down and we'll give you credit for um, putting up political posts. It's really great, but what happens when the kids get out of school? As far as the American university system, we're seeing the end of it. We're seeing the last generation. Why? Because these kids are going to have no jobs to go to. And when the parents who are supporting them kiss off and the Social Security girls broke, there ain't going to be no more universities. Curiously, this was uh, predicted uh, over 100 years ago by Thorsten Veblen, my pal, the great Chicago economist, in a book called The Higher Learning. He was an economist, and he looked at the, uh, universities, and he said, wait a second, they are no longer turning out preachers as they did you know, in the 17th century, or citizens uh, and professionals as they did in the 18th and 19th century. They're selling indulgence. I've got to ask if you sent your kids to college. Thank God. I sent one of them to college, but the rest of them, thank God, they said no. In fact, my youngest daughter, God bless her, she even dropped out of high school. Let's turn to the national campus, if we could, America. In some senses, the president looks like, you know, could have well have been a, a character. He could have come out of that world of the businessman with ambitions and frustrations that you've 
often described so well. Could you imagine him in Glen Gary Glen Ross? Well, he, you know, he's two things. He's actually, he's three things. He's a character, he's a human being, and he's a president of the United States. What a lot of people don't understand or they won't admit is that in addition to whatever he may or may not be, one half of the American people voted for him. Now, did the people vote for him because of his character? Did they vote for him because they liked the way he looked? I don't know. They probably voted for him because they thought that he would do the things that he promised to do. That, to me, is the, is the larger issue, not the personality or the character of Donald Trump. Would you still say that you think his presidency is a net good overall? A net positive? Well, that's a very interesting question. You know, the, the politicians run every two years or four years over here with the idea that they're going to fix the problem. Right? But as the, prob- the, quote, problem is the human condition, the human condition doesn't get fixed. The human condition comes down to what every person does at every moment. Uh, one of the big questions in, human, in current American life is what is the purpose of government? So the liberals think that the purpose of government is to fix what finally is the human condition. Greed and envy and anger and inequality, those, are, those things are the human condition. The conservatives think that the purpose of government is to fix the roads and the sewers and leave everybody the hell alone. The difference goes back to uh, the Constitution, the fight over the Constitution, when it was uh, made, and the fight over the meaning of the Constitution ever since. Uh, So, overall, good or bad? (laughs) Well, as far as I'm concerned, I I like a lot of the things he's done. I don't like a lot of the things he's done. He's not my Fuhrer, you know. He's the president. The purpose of the president is to preside over what is the president supposed to preside? The three branches of government, right? That's what the president's supposed to do. So if you look at American democracy, what it is is, based on the Constitution, it's a contract among thieves. It's a contract among flawed people who say, you know what, I don't completely trust you, and I know you don't completely trust me. So let's put three of us in a room. Each one of us has certain powers of veto, and you'll get to do certain things, and I'll get to do certain things. Let's watch each other like a hawk. Here's something else. See, the underlying tone of of this interview, as with most of them I've done in the last 10 years, has maybe reduced to you've been accused of or let me catch you out in some statement. I think it's a goddamn shame. I, I, I hope not, and I generally don't, you know, fall into into the category. But l- no, let me ask something more open, poli- then. That's a fair point. I mean, no, I, I have, um, I've got very, very open views o- on this. But I was actually going to ask you something else from the other side of the spectrum, which is, do you think that, you know, doors are now closed to people because of their political views, that Hollywood is narrower in terms of what it wants to put out as a political view. Do you find that difficult? Listen, Hollywood has always been a collection of thugs and cowards. Back to day one. Once in a while, somebody snuck in who made a pretty good movie. But I'll tell you what else. As a paid observer of the social scene, it occurs to me it might be characterized as hypocrisy that if Hollywood is opposed to the sexual exploitation of women, perhaps they would stop putting pornographic scenes in every one of their movies. And if Hollywood is opposed to firearms, perhaps they would stop putting guns, not only in every one of their movies, but in every advertisement for their movies. You don't have any 
great desire to, to make films again or go back to film? Well, I've been I've been writing films. I just wrote a film for a guy, and I'm working on another another couple of movies. I love making movies. I made a lot of them, uh, both as a director and as a writer, and I, I and I love the form. I, I was very fortunate for a number of years that I worked with a bunch of producers who said to me, "Okay, how much money do you need? Here it is. See you with the opening." You know, I'm much too old and experienced to deal with the blandishments of people who say come let me lie to you and piss all over your work and then not make it. So I'm keeping myself a little bit to myself, but as I say, I just, I just wrote a movie. As you're 70 now, it's not yet legacy territory, but you must think a bit about what you'd like to leave behind and what you'd like, like to do in the rest of your writing life. What's top of the list? Well, the interesting thing about being dead is basically you don't leave anything behind. So my, I had a rabbi once who said people who really are, in, at the end of their life, are involved in making last requests are missing the whole point of being dead. So I'm looking forward to leaving nothing behind, whether that, that nothing happens in six months or ten years or hundred years, it doesn't make any difference. It's all Ozymandias, king of kings. And I hope that next time I, I could be reborn as anything except I don't want to be reborn as a cat because I'm allergic to cats. David Mamet, and we'd love to know what you think of our conversation. How should fiction engage with shifting gender politics? And does political correctness risk stifling great writing? Write to us at radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not try a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 British pounds. Always be closing, as Mr Mamet once put it. And I'm Anne McElvoy, closing, as always, in London. This is The Economist. <laughs>